Good morning, church. My name is Emily McGinley, and I have the great joy of serving as pastor uh, most often at our at Urban Village Church Hyde Park Woodlawn, uh, where uh, Pastor Hannah is preaching this morning. So we're doing a little um, pulpit swap and um, getting to know one another's uh, communities a little bit better. Last time I was here, uh, Hannah was on maternity leave, um, so it is good to be back and um, worship with you all again. Uh, please join with me in a word of prayer. God, we are grateful for the gift of community that we can find ourselves in various spaces, um, but know that you are present, and especially that you are present when we build the kind of spaces where you can show up in all fullness. And so we ask that in this space as, um, that you would, you would meet us in our showing up, that you would uh, open our hearts and minds to what it is that you would have to say to us today, and that um, we would receive that, uh, whether it is... Um, a healing word or a challenging word or a disruptive word or something altogether um, all different. Uh, speak through me in spite of me so that your work might be done. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Plymouth Rock, the Boston Tea Party. Betsy Ross, Manifest Destiny. Every nation has an origin story. Who tells it and how it is told? Who is included and what gets forgotten? Historians call this historiography. Lin-Manuel Miranda sang about it. Henry, Gates, or Henry Louis Gates Jr. interviews people about it, and Amy Tan writes about it. Origin stories are key for shaping identity, for envisioning destiny and articulating purpose, which means it is important to pay attention to what stories are being told and whose voice is telling the story. Now, our passage for today is an origin story, actually, or the continuation of one. The people of Israel call Abraham a founding father. Isaac is the next chapter. Even that narrative is a little messy, as we'll hear next week. Uh, and this next generation doesn't promise to be any more tidy, right? We drop in on Isaac and Rebecca, who, like Isaac's parents, have grown advanced in their years, but have yet to continue the family name. And at this point, after all the stuff that Sarah had thrown her way with Rebecca, I assume not in relation to the family, I'm inclined to think that the fertility challenges don't lie solely on the womb side, as our presumably male scriptural authors would constantly lead us to believe. But that is not the point I'm here to make. Isaac learned enough from his parents' missteps and his half-brother Ishmael's pain to know what not to do, even if you are desperate for a family. And so he relegates himself to his favored position for child-making, which is not missionary, although missionaries do teach it. He got down on his knees and he prayed. Thank you. He prayed as fervently as his spirit could muster. He prayed in earnest, and for whatever reason, our author tells us that God was moved by this prayer. The way was made, and a few months later, Rebecca finds herself on her knees. She is in agony over the intense movement of her children in utero, and like any first-time mother, is surely full of anxiety, thinking the worst about what is happening inside of her. Rebecca prays desperately, and like a divine ultrasound, God shows her what is going on. There are not just one, but two babies. And these babies who struggle, they will grow to be boys and then men, who always at odds with one another, grappling in roles, with, in relationship to one another, in family, in life, in the world. They wrestle up until the day they enter the world as Jacob grips his brother Esau's heel, a last grasp at assuming position as the firstborn. But Esau, the stronger, slips out first, eldest and heir to God's promise. As 
And as Esau and Jacob struggled with one another throughout their childhood, they hurt each other, inflicting wounds that don't show up on the pages. They weren't brothers, they were competition, right? Esau was stronger, so Jacob had to be smarter. Esau was his father's favorite, so Jacob was mama's boy. Everyone was in their respective corners scheming, strategizing about how to pull one over on each other. They weren't making memories, they were formulating stories. Stories about who each other were and what motives they operated from. Jacob constantly feels inferior, smaller, lesser, and maybe even swindled out of what he felt was truly his, thwarted in his destiny of greatness in spite of his second son's status. Esau perhaps feels his privilege as the eldest sees Jacob as a whiny little wimp who won't just get over it. He feels strong and powerful and invincible. Layers of self-righteousness strengthened by disappointment and anger that leaves everyone on edge. No one wants to be the fool, so they lock themselves into prisons of self-protection, isolated by fear of getting, their fear of getting hurt, getting caught off guard, holding grudges, incapable of imagining that things could actually be different between them. Jacob is egged on by his own mother to steal Esau's blessing, and, and this is after he had already taken Esau's inheritance, right? So Jacob thoroughly robs his brother, and in the process, severs something sacred in their relationship, if you keep reading past our passage for today. He knows it. Jacob knows this, and he runs away and finally realizes in his wilderness vulnerability what he had so easily taken for granted in his brother, in his family, there are stories that we tell about each other and about ourselves. We justify our actions and villainize others. We gloss over our shortcomings while fixating on their faults. But like the multiple eyewitness accounts of an incident, perspective can make quite a difference. In the world at large and in our personal relationships, we exist among diverse truths, orbiting in solar systems and galaxies of even more multiple truths. This story that we read today is written from the perspective of Jacob's descendants. So this is their lens on what happened. I'm sure Esau has a very different story to tell. So how do we sort through these truths? Whose truth is more true? Which truth should have primacy? Well, in the wake of South Africa's 50 years of apartheid, the country had a whole generation's worth of violent gaslighting, systemic oppression, and cultural mutilation to contend with. Officially, as a form of, of, of governance, apartheid was over, but its legacy and the centuries of colonialism um, that mind after everyone uh, that had preceded, was, preceded it wasn't going away anytime soon, and they couldn't just sweep it all under the rug and pretend like, hey, it's a new day, right? They had to have some kind of spiritual trial or something to, to lay out, to understand and adjudicate what had happened in people's souls, in the soul of the nation. And so the Archbishop of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, a spiritual caretaker for the region, designed a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to do just that. And as people came forward with their stories, data, and witnesses to what had happened, it became overwhelmingly clear that there, while there may be multiple truths, all truths are not the same. And so they identified four kinds of truths. The first is factual truths, which is all about, well, the facts, right? In other words, what happened to whom, where, when, and how, and who was involved. This is data truth. But then there's narrative truth, which is about hearing victims tell their stories in their own languages, not the language of the colonizer, right? And this validated the experiences of people who had been previously silenced or voiceless. 
It captured the widest possible record of people's perceptions, stories, myths, and experiences. It paid attention to people's truths, not only um, helping uh, them to understand how the same event was experienced differently, but also helping them to, people to feel heard and seen in a way that was meaningful and restorative, this narrative truth. And then there's social truth, which emerges through the interaction, discussion, and debate that happens as people sit in the same space and tell their various stories and um, experiences. It's a space where the perspectives of everyone are taken seriously and put in conversation with one another. And so this truth is actually less about really kind of where you end up and more about the process of what happens as you talk with one another and share and grapple with the truths that are expressed. All of these truths are true in their own right, right? And so how do you cut through these truths? What do you do with them? Which truths should we pay more attention to? Well, this is where the fourth truth comes in, healing or restorative truth. This is the kind of truth that places the facts and what they mean within the context of human relationships. It's not enough to determine what had happened, but to acknowledge the pain that was inflicted and experienced, that it is real and worthy of attention. It's the kind of truth that helps to repair damage that was caused in the past, but also prevent future abuse. This is the truth that leads to a future together. Even as the inheritance and blessing unfold for Jacob, as he goes um, on to live his life, there's a deep emptiness in his being. He is haunted by his behavior in spite of all of his success. And if the story ended there, it would be tragedy and a disappointment and an ongoing psychological wound in the DNA of God's people. But it doesn't. Twenty-ish years later, after Jacob has had some of his own hard experiences of what it's like to be taken advantage of, he finds himself in the position of having to face Esau, vulnerable and at his mercy. He is terrified when Esau sends word that he'll be coming at him with 400 men. And the night before they meet, Jacob wrestles with a stranger all night. Some folks think this stranger is God. But I have to wonder if it's actually Jacob's younger self, right, inflicting a wound that he will carry for the rest of his days, really confronting himself in all the ways that he had been. In the morning, Jacob lines up all his people with the people he kind of likes the least in the front and the ones he loves the most in the back making sure that he, he's convinced that there will be some kind of slaughter, right? And he runs out in front of his caravan. He gets down on his knees, and he bows down seven times before Esau with his face just to the ground. He doesn't know what to expect, but what happens definitely was not it. Instead of a punch in the face, Jacob is knocked down with hugs and tears and kisses. All the years of animosity, all the pain and resentment, gone. What happened? Well, they tapped out, I think. After all the years and cycles of relational violence they had engaged in throughout their childhood, rage, revenge, resentment, repeat, they were done. Joseph was no longer the smug, sneaky weasel. Esau was no longer the brawny, meathead bully. And the minute he saw his brother out there bowing down, Esau knew that things could be different. They were ready for a restorative truth, ready to acknowledge the past, but just let it, put, let it go to rest. Ready to build something true, something good, something authentic together. Now, for many of us, family is the most difficult place to disrupt relational patterns. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> 
No matter how old we grow, no matter how many degrees we earn, no matter how much money we make, we instantly fall into old patterns. He does this, she says that, they get self-righteous and he starts drinking. No matter how much we may want things to change, it can feel almost impossible to imagine something different. But if we look at Jacob and Esau, we find three practices that disrupted their patterns of relating to one another. The first was vulnerability. The first thing that Jacob did was bow down. Not one, not three, but seven times, right? There was Esau outfitted with 400 men expecting at least a skirmish, right? But instead seeing his brother flat on his face, full of repentance. Instead of defensiveness, Jacob was brave enough to say, I need help or I need forgiveness. And this opened a new way of being in relationship with one another. The next thing that happened was Esau running toward Jacob, right? Throwing his arms around his neck, demonstrating a kind of courage, right? To pursue a restorative truth. You robbed me blind, but I'm so glad. I I just want to be in relationship with you. I have a whole list of things that are totally legitimate that I could throw at you, but I don't want that. I want you. He chose to engage the past in a new way in order to pursue a future of reconciliation and healing. And finally, Jacob demonstrated gratitude. He had planned to gift his brother all kinds of livestock. He says, listen, you know, I've got all these you know, sheep and goats and whatever for you, right? A kind of apology gift to soften what had happened. And Esau tells him, keep it. I don't need any of this. But Jacob insists. And now the gift is not an apology, but a sign of gratitude. No, please, he says, take it. Seeing your face is like seeing the face of God, is what he says. Now, at this point, Jacob and Esau are at least in their 40s or 50s. And you have to wonder, what could their relationship have been like? What could their lives have been like if they had reached this place earlier? If the bulk of their lives hadn't been spent full of resentment and hurt, stuck in these frozen images of who they had been toward one another? What if they had gotten to this place earlier, disrupting the patterns and acknowledging their multiple truths, grappling with them honestly, and practicing a kind of authenticity and relationship with one another? What are the relationships that need to be disrupted in your life? Who are the people that you struggle to be vulnerable with? How do you need to practice courage or show gratitude It may be that the relationship doesn't change that much, but I believe it could change you. I was having a conversation with a UVCer a few weeks ago, and they shared how their mother had been narcissistic and emotionally manipulative their whole life. This person had so much anger toward her, and as I listened to them share, it was clear that this anger was holding them hostage in so many ways. It was sucking up energy that they could be using to strengthen their marriage, to build up their promising career, to even gain some kind of healing for themselves. They were frozen, bound up by this anger. And so I asked them, tell me some things that you consider maybe to be a gift from your mother. What are some things that she taught you or ways that she strengthened you? What are memories that you might cherish? They listed off a few things. And I said, well, what if you sent your mother a note once a week for a month or two months and just shared one memory? It doesn't have to be extensive. One, one way that she helped you to be the person that you are today, right? Well, 
They didn't like that very much. <laughs> and I said, listen, this isn't for her, right? Although she, might, she herself might find herself touched or changed by it, this isn't for her. It's for you. You need to disrupt this relational cycle you have with her because it is eroding you. Like an acid, it is eating away at your ability to have joy in its fullness. Try something different for you. It may be that you'll find other relationships in your life becoming less tense, less agitated. You might find yourself at peace in new ways. Try something different. Imagine a different story about what could be. Who knows? You might even see the face of God. Let us pray. God, we are grateful that you invite us to be people of courage, to be people of vulnerability, to, pe to be people of imagination, that the way things are is not the way things will always have to be. And so help us to be people who step out in ways that feel maybe a little bit impossible for who we are, but um, help us to live more fully into being the people that you created us to be. And help us in our small steps of courage to inject, inject something new into the world, to disrupt cycles of violence, whether that's emotional violence or relational violence or even physical violence. Help us to be people of Easter, people of new life, of resurrection, and to do so with the courage and the strength and the joy that you gift to us through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.